So imagine I were given a test to see if I could identify a true follower of Jesus Christ. And the way that test would go is like this. I'm not told who the people are who are being described. Imagine you are one of the people, you're the Christ follower, and the other person being described is not a Christ follower. So the two reports describe conversations, internet, YouTube habits, um, television, movie, music, work behaviors, financial handling, leisure time, thoughts, yes, even thoughts, attitudes, passions, and dreams. Would I be able to tell the difference between you and the person who's not a follower of Christ? You and your unconverted friend, your neighbor, your coworker, or fellow student. In the passage that was read today from 1 John 2, verses 12 to 17, John addresses this issue about the difference between Christians and non-Christians. John has set some challenging standards in this letter. First John is a letter, by the way. And uh, as we've seen and will continue to see, he doesn't dumb down to the lowest common denominator. The evidences are tests for the true life in Christ. At the same time, he doesn't want to cause his readers to doubt that they have life in Christ if they truly do. For example, in 1 John 5, 13, he wrote, I've written these things in order that you may know that you have eternal life, you who believe in the name of of the Son of God. But today, uh, John is going to, in the first part of the passage that was read, verses 12 to 14, John speaks words of encouragement, saying, I really believe that you are children of God. In the second section, in verses 15 to 17, he says, Therefore you are to live differently than the world. So we'll just jump right into the outline, and uh, if you have your Bible or your phone Bible handy, keep it open to 1 John 2, verses 12 to 17. And in the first section, 12 to 14, he talks about three different types of believers. Uh, He calls them children of God, which could be uh, referring to new believers, Uh, Fathers, which could be referring to more mature and seasoned believers, and young men, or young men and women, who are younger in the faith but strong in the word. Or he could be talking about two groups, children of God referring to all of God's children, because back in verse 1 of chapter 2, he talked about, uh, he referred to all God's children, all God's people as God's children. And so under that category, he could be including all Believers as being under the categories of young men and fathers. It doesn't really matter much because the interpretation still comes out about the same. So combining, John talks about them in three different sentences twice. So I'm going to combine what he says about children, what he says about fathers, and young men. So children, in verse 12 and then uh, toward the end of verse 12, he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And I write to you, children, because you know the Father. So it doesn't make a huge difference how we interpret what John means by children because his words are true of all God's people, whether new Christians only or whether he talks about fathers and young men as well. So children are those whose sins are forgiven for Christ's namesake. If we think sin is no big deal 
and certainly not deserving punishment, then forgiveness won't seem so amazing. Uh, Amazing grace will not seem like a very sweet sound, much less saving those who are wretches like us will not seem like an accurate description of us. But if we know how much God hates sin, we will be stunned and grateful that God forgives our sins for Christ's namesake. Have you been stunned by that? The fact that God forgives our sins for the sake of Christ's name, that Christ would attach his name as the forgiver of sins, the one who never knew any sin at all of his own. But for his namesake, he purchased our forgiveness. That is a great truth. Another mark of being God's children is that they know the Father. Before trusting Christ, they didn't know God. They didn't have a relationship with him. But like a child knows his father, they know God as father. And so that's very precious. Two of the most precious things about all of us are sins are forgiven for the sake of Christ's name and that we know God as father. The second group he talks to is he calls them fathers. He says, fathers, I'm writing to you because you know him who is from the beginning. And then he says, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. He says it twice. So the greatest privilege of being a Christian, as we already noted, is knowing God. Jesus said that is what eternal life is in, as he prayed to the Father in John 17. He said, uh, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he, he, you have sent. So as children, we know the basics of our Father's love and discipline. As teens, we're trying to figure out life for ourselves and may question whether our fathers get it, which sometimes we don't. And then sometimes in adulthood, sometime in adulthood, especially when we become fathers, suddenly our fathers become brilliant. We recognize all their vast wisdom, or at least some degree of wisdom. And so with God, we, uh, as, as fathers, as spiritual fathers, those who are mature in the faith, know God who's been from the beginning. Only the difference between us knowing God that way is that he didn't have to learn anything. He's just always been. He is the one from the beginning. So to say a person is a spiritual father who knows God, who, who God has been from the beginning is saying that through the spiritual fathers, through seasoned exposure to God's word and experience of his unfailing faithfulness, wisdom, and goodness, have grown in knowing God as having always known everything. That's different than us, right? And uh, he's been there and done that by his very nature. Spiritual fathers have learned how eternally wise and trustworthy God is. They realize God never needed our advice, has never been frantic or in a panic, because he is working all things after the counsel of his infinitely powerful, eternal, wise, and good will. So spiritual fathers learn that about God. They learn how that God has always been there from the beginning, and they trust his faithfulness and his wisdom. And then spiritual young men or young women... He says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. So young men and women in the faith have overcome the evil one who steals and kills and destroys life through his deception and lies. They are spiritually strong because God's word abides in them, continues to dwell in them. His truth is in their lives to stay. Okay, so we've raced over those three categories of people that he's writing to. But the main thing is he's encouraging them. He says, I believe that you are children of God, uh, that you are fathers and young, and young men and women in the faith, 
And with that, now he's going to issue another challenge. John is great on giving us very challenging things. Uh, As God's children whose sins are forgiven, as fathers who know him who is from the beginning, and as young people in the faith who are strong because the word of God is in them, we are supposed to live differently from the world. There's been a change in our affections in what we should love that makes us different. And that's what he says in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So what's he talking about when he says world? Is he talking about the planet? No, he's not saying don't, you know, he's not saying hate, don't love the planet, the, the world as it is. Um, maybe he's not saying the same thing as love your mother bumper stickers are, but he's not saying don't hate the planet. Or does he mean the world in, in, series of, in the sense of people? Didn't Jesus in the Old Testament teach we are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, even love our enemies? No, he's not saying don't love people. But what he's saying, when he says the word world, what he means is the realm of rebellion against God, the world system that is against God, the world of opposition to and indifference to God, the passions, pursuits, and pride that are not based in love for God and trust in God. So it's a God-denying, God-indifferent world that he's talking about. That sense. In fact, John uses the word world over 20 times, and most of the time he does, he's referring to the world in this sense, the the rebellious, uh, organized system against God in the world, of the world. So you can understand why John says, do not love the world, can't you? Don't set your affections on the world or its things. It's God-opposing passions, pursuits, and pride. For if you love what is against God or what ignores God, love for God as Father is not in you. You can't have the love of God in you and have your affections set on things that are opposed to or indifferent to God. That's what John is saying. And John had just said in uh, verses 12 to 14 that children and fathers know God as Father, and that means to have a love relationship with the Father. It's fundamental to having true life in Christ, to being a Christian, is to love God, to love God, to know Him intimately as Father. So you can't love the things that are opposed to God. In verse 16, then, he goes on and describes further in uncomfortable detail what, those, what the world is composed of that he's talking about, this God-opposing world. So in verse 16, he says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... The desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So let's walk through. What are these desires of the flesh, eyes, and pride of life? So the desires of the flesh are, you know, we've experienced it, demands for satisfaction in ways that are against God's design. Demands to be satisfied in ways that are apart from God's design. Uh, Desires themselves are not bad. In fact, God made us to desire him, to love him, to know him, to be satisfied in him as our chief desire above everything else. And God also made us with desires for other good things, like relationships. We desire being loved and known. That's good. Uh, We have a desire for food, happiness, sex, justice, peace, being productive and skillful. So none of these desires inherently are bad. But when we don't have a relationship with God, when we don't have life in Jesus Christ, we will seek to satisfy these desires in God-dishonoring or God-ignoring ways. 
uh, demanding people meet our needs on our terms, for example. I think of our cats. We have two cats. They are good examples of corrupt desires. They (laughs) They demand that we meet their needs on their terms. So one, is, one in particular, uh, very demanding when she wants attention, when she doesn't. When she wants to sit on your lap, she yells when she doesn't get, what she, get her way. And then she, uh, we got a younger cat, and uh, when he was a kitten, she beat up on him all the time. Now the abuse has turned into the abuser. So we have conflict in our household between the cats. So it's an example of corrupt desires between, uh, between creatures and, and coming from the creatures toward us. So it's cats are a lot easier to talk about than people, right? Because, you know, that's just how it is. Our human desires of the flesh show up in conflicts that lead to cold wars, passive-aggressive behaviors, angry outbursts, gossip and griping. Need I go on? Okay. I'll, I'll go on just a little bit further. Manipulating people to give what we want. Uh, there's food idolatries, food disorders, drunkenness, sexual immorality. Laziness, workaholism, are just a few expressions of the desires of the flesh. So if I haven't named your favorite desire of the flesh, I apologize. Just fill in the blank. You know, your favorite, your top one. Um, John doesn't list any specifics at all. He just expects us to get it. He expects us to know what our struggles are uh, as we prayerfully bring these matters before the Lord in prayer and in community with other believers. We can find what our fleshly struggles are, and I would say most of us would know what those are. Desires of the flesh and of the eyes are so interconnected that as I talk about the, the desires of the eyes, we'll still be talking about both, actually, because the desires of the flesh are internally generated, and desires of the eyes are externally provoked, and they inevitably feed off one another. So the desires of the eyes are, we desire what we see regardless of what sin it involves or leads us into. It's what we fixate on. Desire stimulated through the eye gate. God designed us to d- admire beauty. He made us to respond to, to the world as he created. It was beautiful and good. So we were meant to enjoy seeing good things, enjoy the beauty of God and his people. But sin entered the world and, and what looks good may be false and deadly, sort of like the Matrix. If you ever saw the movie The Matrix, they... Uh, the machines took over human beings and gave them the illusion that they were living in the real world, but they weren't. They were just being milked for their bioenergy. I'm glad that doesn't happen now. But, uh, but yeah, they, they had a false world in, their, in what they saw. And the world about us tries to offer us false joy, false substitutes for God. So desires of the eyes divorce the love of beauty from the love of goodness. The desires of the eyes divorce the love of beauty from the love of goodness. So we love to look at things without evaluating whether we should be looking at them or not. So I just got to state the obvious. You know where I'm going with some of this, probably. Uh, There is stuff on the Internet that's not good. Uh, Internet porn is is a plague in our society. Um, Many movies and TV shows display sinful behavior in graphic ways. People excuse it by saying, well, these things really happen, and it's just art. Well, true, the Bible record includes things like sexual immorality because it really happened, but it always presents it as wrong in God's sight, and God, in his wisdom, didn't give these things to us in DVD. 
because we are so wired to respond to what we see. And sometimes what we see is in itself good. Not all that we see is bad, but it stirs up wrong desires for a good thing. So I see someone else's house and I resent that they have it and I don't. The Tenth Commandment says you must not covet your neighbor's house or spouse or anything else they have. So through our eye gate, we can be tempted to sin, either by desiring good things in the wrong way or, or responding to seeing bad things, which can't help but to be in the wrong way. Job said he had made a covenant with his eyes that he would not gaze at a young woman to lust after her. David wrote that he would not set before his eyes anything that is worthless. He blew that in one big way with Bathsheba. One day our eyes will only behold the glory of God and his glorified people. Just as everything else about us was designed by God to find its ultimate purpose in glorifying God and enjoying him forever, so it is with our eyes. So in 1 John 3, 3, and we'll read when we get there, our final transformation into the likeness of Jesus will be when we see him as he is, we will become like him. It's, so seeing is not just believing, seeing is becoming. We are meant to be conformed to what we see. And when you're looking at the glory of God, that's great. When you're looking at things that are not God and treating them as God, then that becomes corrupting. Whether good things into God things or things that are inherently wrong. So the warning for this life is what we see with our eyes can corrupt us and make us dull to God's glory. Until finally we see his face, that'll be the featured attraction in the kingdom, the new heavens and new earth. Until then, we just need to sing, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. How's the rest of it go? Sing it. That's great. Man, you guys are incredible. Well, let's move on to the pride of life. The third of this unholy trinity of desires is the pride of life. That means arrogance or pride in what we have. Usually that means riches and possessions. How we live, what we do or achieve carries a sense that the basis for this pride, this confidence, is false. So riches, possessions, achievements in themselves are not evil, But Jesus warns us so often about the deceitfulness of riches, a lot he does, and uh, how our life does not consist in what we have. He warns of the danger of storing up treasure for ourselves and not being rich toward God. And Paul warns us that craving money has led some to abandon the faith. So there's riches are a, a hazardous, dangerous zone for us. God designed us to find our highest joy, satisfaction, and security in him. By the way, I know I've said this many times before, but we're all rich in, this, in the world. You're thinking, well, that's not a problem for me. I'm poor. I can't even afford uh, much at all. And in comparison to the rest of the world, we are all in the upper 5% of the world's wealth bracket. So you've got that going for you. But God designed us to find our highest joy, satisfaction, and security in him. Money and possessions so often become replacements for trusting in and treasuring God. And we are not to seek glory from people, but to love giving glory to God. But often we want people to give glory to us and what we have and what we've achieved. So we confuse our identity with what we've achieved and what we do. We make it our life. It's good to achieve. It's good to have money. And those are not bad in themselves. But pride and confidence in them and self-serving greed are the problems. 
Of course, one reason God provides us money is to meet our basic needs for, the Bible calls our basic needs food and clothing. And Paul says, with those we should be content. And I'm going, man, my basic needs list is a lot longer than food and clothing. So I've got some work to do to be content with just that. But that tells us uh, how much we assume that what we need is, well, that's way too convicting. So let's just move on, okay? Let's just ask this way. Given that I'm a wealthy American, am I glorifying God and serving others and meeting my family's basic needs by my use of money and possessions? Or am I worshiping at the altar of the pride of life? In the last phrase in verse 16, John says, The desires of the flesh, eyes, and pride of life are not sourced from the Father, but from the world. So living in these desires is incompatible with living from the Father. We are supposed to draw our life from the Father, not from the world. Do my desires and your desires reflect the heart of the Father, who is pure goodness, holiness, and truth? And not only should we not love the world because it's opposed to the Father, because it is incompatible with love for the Father, but because the world and its desires is passing away. So that brings us to verse 17. Not only are we not supposed to love the world because of its, of its corruption, but because it's temporary. We can't treat it as if it's forever. There's only one thing that's eternal, and that's God and his word. And then us, if we plug into God and his word. So verse 17 says that the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Well, the world as a God-alienated system is passing away. And the desires that are sourced, promoted by, inspired by, the world are passing away. Desires rooted in this present age that were meant to be satisfied in ways that God designed are going to pass away. Doesn't mean we, doesn't mean we withdraw from the world, as Paul wrote in one passage in First Corinthians. Those who make use of the world should be as though they don't use the world. In other words, use the world, but just don't act like it's God. For the present form of this world is passing away. We don't withdraw from the world, but we do the will of God in the world. John wrote similar words in in uh, verse eight of chapter two of First John. The darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The darkness of sin and death and devil as ruling powers has been defeated by Christ in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. We now live in the preliminary installation period of the light of Christ's victory through the announcing of this good news, the summons to repent and believe this good news. So in light of Christ's victory, we have a message. Repent and believe the good news. The new age of Christ has arrived. The present age is going away. But John says the one who does what God desires will never pass away, but will live forever. The one who does the will of God remains forever. So if you want to live forever, that is truly live forever. It's simple. Do the will of God. Thankfully, this is the will of God that you repent of living for this world's desires and you trust in the only one who ever perfectly lived for what God desires, that is Jesus Christ. The only one who could ever truly say, I always do what's pleasing to the Father. How do I know the will of God? In the book, you just need to marinate your mind and heart in the scriptures. 
There's no substitute for continually being in the Word of God to know the will of God. But thankfully, His will is, Jesus said, whoever looks upon the Son that is in faith and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So God's will is, if you look upon Jesus and you keep trusting in Him, you will be raised on the last day. You will not fade away. You will not pass away. The battle between love for the world and love for God is fought at the level of desires. But it is a grace-filled fight. It's just a fight that we'll fight all of our lives. So you can't be a Christian without being a fighter. I'm not going to give you a, a world love versus God loves checklist, but I'm just going to ask some questions, and then we'll close. What am I desiring that I'm allowing to lead me to act the way I do? Because it's about my desires. What am I desiring that leads me to act the way I do or have the attitudes I do or say the things I do? What do I need to repent of and turn toward in order to submit these desires to the will and word of God? Ask yourself this. Is my life becoming more and more conformed to Jesus and his word? Or is it looking more like the world? Do my attitudes, passions, pursuits, speech, habits, joys, sorrows, and way of life identify me as belonging to Christ or the world? Remember who you are, forgiven of sin, freed from sin. You know the Father. Closing with this quote from C.S. Lewis, it's a famous quote of his. He says, If you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. What am I demanding to be happy? What am I fixating on? What am I trusting in? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that by your grace, if we have seen that we are bankrupt, we have no righteousness to win your favor, and that life is not the desires of this world, but life is in knowing you, in knowing Christ, in trusting in him, his life for our life, his death for our death, his riches for our bankruptcy. Would you cause us, Father, to be ever mindful of the pressures around us that would seek to conform us to just living the way the world does? The world has got great advertising. It's powerful, but your power is greater. So would you help us, Father, to be diligent in evaluating our own desires and submitting all of our desires to you, seeking our satisfaction in you. Trusting your word is always faithful to set us on the right track. Oh God, help us to live as a people in whom your love flows. Love from you, love for you. And let us love the world by serving the world, not by imitating it. And give us the wisdom, Father, to see 
we don't need to work on being unnecessarily weird. But we do want to be distinct. Because we are. That's who we are. As Christ was in the world, so must we be. And we, we struggle greatly with that. So we just need your grace to help us see where we may be living more like the world, loving the world more than we love you. Help us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.